Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. To crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear Amy Allen. You have a weird human body and not just a pristine, uncunted Barbie mound. <laughs> that and more. But before that, how about some of this? Oh, a trip to the post office is hardly ever quick. Driving there, finding parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do. Use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to get postage on demand. Buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or pen. Using your own computer and printer plus a digital scanner. Oh, you'll never waste time at the post office again. I use Stamps.com and I'm obviously cool. Use the promo code. Go to risk for a no-risk trial. It's $110 bonus offer. That's the digital scale and $55 free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter Also, you might remember that Chris Castiglione used to be a member of the Risk team. He created our site at risk-show.com. Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans love that course. But remember, the One Month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials Teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a photo sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a live, real person online to help you out. You learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. You'll be joining over 14,000 students that have already started building their own dream app. What are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk 
loves you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support risk. It's one-month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now, from here on out, the show will be uninterrupted. It is live from Chapel Hill at the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival. Thank you so much to the wonderful Zach Ward for bringing us there. Folks, now here's the show. down the street and around this neighborhood, things are becoming so big and hip around here. You guys are out of control. This theater itself is exploding. It's very exciting. I'll tell you what, though. It's a little bit, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I think whenever I see a neighborhood getting so fun and exciting is, okay, now stop. You know, because if it starts to become, as a New Yorker, I can warn you, if it starts starts to become too hip then the people from the Jersey Shore start coming you don't want that oh my gosh I walked up the street and I I went to this bookstore there's a super it's like wow bookstores still exist I walked in and I found in the psychology section this book called uh, Stories for the Third Ear, because I'm always looking for books about stories. And it was about how to tell stories that will hypnotize people. <laughs> for hypnotherapy, I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. I got to get that. But what, I was downstairs in the green room and I started just kind of look at the first chapter and it said that any definitive statement you make in a story could end up really sticking in someone's subconscious because the subconscious can't even tell if you're joking. It just takes a definitive statement and it might run with it years later. And I was like, oh my God. What have I been doing? Just a few months ago, we did the wrist show in, in San Francisco, and it was all kinky stories, and it was all kinksters in the audience. So at one point, I threw into to a story, and afterwards, if you all want to poop on me, you can. And I'm like, oh my God. What have I created for my future? I've programmed 300 people. I don't know. Now I'm worried about everything I say. Listen, how many people know the Risk Podcast? That is so awesome. In January, we had our best month ever in our existence. We had almost a million downloads in one month. So we are doing dandy, and you are too. Here's to all of us. 
Um, but if you've never heard the podcast before, or if you don't know what Risk is, Risk is the show where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So... It's kind of like some of those shows you'd hear on NPR, except you would never hear this shit on NPR. <laughs> it's anything goes. Some of these stories are going to be hilarious. Some are going to be a little bit shocking or horrifying or maybe tear-jerking. We go anywhere in the emo emotional roller coaster where we want. So that's what it's all about. Nothing's inappropriate until something most definitely is. I think I've already taken us a few of those places. I am going to start us with a story. The theme tonight is mad love. Meaning uh, love for anything. A, a time when you got a little bit carried away with something or someone. And then we're like, wow, that didn't really work out, did it? <laughs> uh, so I'm going to start back when I was a bit of a baby, when I was 22 years old. This story starts, I'm in my bathroom on Gay Street in downtown Manhattan, because there is a street called Gay Street in downtown Manhattan. And back when it was affordable to live in downtown Manhattan, you know, that's where I lived. <laughs> Of course that was my address. I remember my mother saying, Oh my God, now it's on your envelopes too. <laughs> but I'm in my bathroom on Gay Street and I am desperately trying to figure out how to get the black ink out of my eyebrows and eyelashes. I'm thinking, my gosh, how does someone get this stuff out? I don't know what to do. Oh, I did have fantastic all-purpose cleaner with bleach, but no one in their right mind would start rubbing that all over their eyes. So, that's what I did. I started rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing until the stinging got so bad that I heard that voice screaming in my head that sounds so much like my mom saying, Kevin, you're about to blind yourself! And I finally stopped. And I saw that I had not gotten any of the black ink out of my eyebrows and eyelashes. I had only created these big maroon circles of raw rawness, like raw meat around my eyes, on an already flamingly sunburnt face. How did I end up in this situation? See, I had just run back home from this beauty salon on Christopher Street, the gayest neighborhood in New York. And at this beauty salon, I had insisted to this woman named Ilsa that she let me have 20 sizzling minutes in the tanning bed. And then that she take this dye and my, make my eyebrows and eyelashes raven black, even though, you know, I look like Sissy Spacek most of the time. <laughs> Now, why did I think this was a good idea? Because I thought it might make me look like Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> you see, what I really looked like was a short-haired drag queen, only of the species lobster, right? <laughs> Sandy Claws, maybe. But 
I had to look my best on this particular day because it was the day that I was for the first time ever going to fly to the other gayest city in America, San Francisco. Now, you see, my roommate and I, my roommate Matt, we loved Leonardo DiCaprio. We were only a couple years older than he was, but we considered him the ultimate of mm, a certain type that we loved. Now, two hours later, I'm boarding the plane at JFK to go to San Francisco, and I've given up on looking like Leo. I have chosen a whole new style, and it's Jackie Onassis-style sunglasses. <laughs> and I've picked up, you know, the sort of facial concealer that looks like it's probably also the color of Sissy Spacek. Now, I knew that on this plane, I probably looked like I had just escaped from the Bellevue Hospital. But it didn't get me down, because I thought to myself the whole plane ride, wow, Kevin, what discoveries lie ahead of you now? And by discoveries, I meant twinks. <laughs> this is the type I was referring to before. You've probably heard this term used by gay men before. A twink is a guy roundabout in his 20s, thin, not much body hair, and kind of boyish looking. And the story goes that in the 1970s, the older gay men in San Francisco started calling the younger gay men in San Francisco twinks because they reminded them of hostess Twinkies. <laughs> the reasoning was that hostess Twinkies are of no nutritional value. <laughs> but filled with delicious cream. <laughs> now, like I said, that summer I was 22, Matt was 22, and we both were obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio, but we considered him the ultimate twink. We considered ourselves regular guys, right? And Leo, he was the best of all time, except, of course, for the heterosexuality, but... You know, no one's perfect. <laughs> so Matt happened to be out west that summer, and it was his idea that he should drop by San Francisco before coming home to New York, and I should come out and visit him. And he was all excited. He said, Kev, we got to go see the twinks in the city that christened them. So I was like, all right, all right, I will meet you out there. Now, at the payphone in the San Francisco airport, I dialed Matt, and the line went, Aah. I thought, oh, oh, okay, okay. I dialed again, and then again, and again, and it just kept going, Aah. I was petrified. I didn't know anyone in this city. I didn't know anything about this city. I'd never traveled anywhere alone before this. I started to cry. <laughs> but then I stopped myself. I said, Kevin, come on, you're an adventurer. You read on the road. <laughs> you even tried prostitution once and almost succeed. Well, not almost. 
But the point is, go out there and get this town. Now, I couldn't afford a cab, because that would have dug into the drinking funds too much. So once I got out into the, like, you know, passenger pickup area, I noticed there was this kind of shaggy bunch of bohemians, and I thought... What the hell? I'll just ask them for a ride. Now, there's an international law of traveling, and that is don't let a bunch of strangers load you into a van. <laughs> Nevertheless, that's exactly what I did. And I mentioned the only address in San Francisco I'd ever heard of before. I said, um, could you guys take me to Castro Street? <laughs> So in the Castro, I smoked a joint, and then I hid my book bag in someone's bushes in their front lawn. Because, <laughs> you know, you don't want to look like you've got all your possessions on you when you're trying to find a place to spend the night, right? I figured, look, 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 here's the deal, Kevin. You don't have to sleep out on the street. All you have to do is hook up with someone and go home with them. Now... It's probably not going to be some beautiful Twinkie boy because, come on, now you're a homeless person. <laughs> and beggars can't be choosers. But the first bar I entered, I found myself yelling, oh, Mitch Fitzsimmons! It was the queeniest guy that had gone to my high school. Mitch turns around and he was terrified. He said, do I know you? I lifted up my Jackie O sunglasses and he said, oh, Kevin Allison, can you believe I turned out gay? <laughs> I said, Mitch, thank God I ran into you because I was supposed to meet a friend here. I've never been to San Francisco before. I can't find my friend. I don't have a place to stay. And he said, oh, that's too bad. Hey, what's going on with your eyes? I said, oh, I rubbed bleach all over them earlier this afternoon. He said, oh, sure, sure. But I meant, I thought you might have some marijuana. And I said, oh, yeah, I have some stashed in someone's front lawn around the corner. And he said, Kevin, you can stay at my place. Now, on the way to the bushes to retrieve the marijuana, Mitch said... Humba, humba, who is this coming down the street? And I looked up and I said, Matt! It was my friend! Mitch said, what? That's your friend? Kevin, you can both stay at my place the whole weekend. <laughs> so we were reunited and we no longer had to stay with Matt's straight friends. So, <laughs> Matt, I, I, I immediately laid into him. I was like, Matt! I called you, and it was the wrong number. And he said, well, you were probably drunk, or I was probably drunk, or we both were probably drunk when I gave it to you. And I had to admit that that was absolutely true. <laughs> but he went right to business. He said, hey, Mitch, do you know of a bar around here where we might find guys, let's say they're in their 20s, not much body hair, kind of thin and boyish looking, Mitch said, oh, yeah, you want to go to dads and lads. <laughs> Mitch said he could drive us there and then leave us the keys, an extra pair of keys, so that we could come in and, you know, once we were drunkenly coming home later in the night. 
Now, before we go into this place, Matt did a little dance for joy on the sidewalk. He was like, this is it, Kevin. This is our San Francisco adventure. In there are so many beautiful boys. We're going to walk in there. We're going to sweep them off their feet. We're going to take them back to New York City, and we're going to live happily ever after. And I said, Matt, hold on a second. Let's be reasonable here. If the whole party and the evening and the place is called Dads and Lads, uh, isn't it probably lads that are looking for dads? And he said, what? He didn't follow me. And I was like, Matt, we're lads. (laughs) He's like, no, 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 Kevin. You and me, we're old souls, man. And this is San Francisco. They'll be able to sense that in the spiritual zone, because this is a very spiritual town. It's like, all right, we'll see what happens. Well, within two minutes, Matt had zeroed in on the blonde boy in the room who looked most like Leo. Now, I always wanted to avoid too much contention with Matt over, you know, competing for guys or anything like that. So I focused elsewhere on the boy in the room who looked most like Mexican Leo. (laughs) Then we became like hunters stalking deer in the woods, carefully walking around, kind of wide-eyed, definitely a little frightened looking, filled with lust and slight cases of nausea. Matt approached his boy and then backed away. I approached mine and then backed away. We split apart and kind of circled around to do reconnaissance about 12 times. Every now and then we'd actually make eye contact with our boys and then look at the wall as if something was more interesting happening there. And then finally, Matt came up to me and he said, oh, come on, Kevin, just say hello to the guy. And I was like, what the fuck? You haven't said hello to your guy either. We weren't having any fun. But here's the thing. This was the same exact way we acted in New York City. We would always go to the gay bars and kind of find the least approachable looking guy. You know, the guy who is like, oh my God, everyone probably wants him. Set him up on a pedestal, kind of distance yourself a good ways into the corner and kind of stew and marinate in your own fear and (laughs) self-loathing until you're drunk enough to walk up and say hi so messily that you fall on your face, right? (laughs) Here's how both of our conversations with our boys ended up going that night. Hi! Hi. How you doing tonight? Pretty good. You? Yeah, pretty good too. Okay, see you later. Eventually, Matt said, this is madness. Fuck dads and lads. I said, yeah, you know... You and me, we're actually pretty terrified of twinks. He said, yeah, we really kind of are. But you know, there's so much more that this town has to offer than twinks. I said, like what? He said, you and me tomorrow, we're going to get a ton 
of LSD. <laughs> Thank you very much. I want to bring up our first storyteller. She is a performer here at DSI. Uh, she does weekly Herald shows here. Please welcome the stage, Amy Allen! All right. I think the biggest risks you take are when you challenge your own shame. <laughs> and for me, the decision to buy my first vibrator was all about shame. I mean, shame is the only reason to try to buy a vibrator from Target, of all places. Well, shame and a constantly churning undercurrent of sexual frustration. <laughs> Masturbation shame isn't anything new. I mean, that's fairly universal as I understand it, but I think there are layers to it. I think there's definitely a gender thing going on. Like, guys sort of talk about it amongst themselves as it happens. There's <laughs> jokes about jerking off that come at the pace of discovery throughout adolescence. But with girls, it's different. I didn't discuss my self-exploratory adventures with my fellow female friends until I was in my 20s. And even then, it's done really obliquely and with lots of nervous laughter. But there are some barriers to that being an easy conversation. For one, there's no one way to do it. Like, you could decide you're both talking about masturbation, but are you really talking about doing the same thing? Plus, masturbation falls in this weird no-woman's-land between sex and, like, bathroom humor. Like, women are discouraged from admitting that they have, like, sexual impulse, and they're also discouraged from being crude or obscene. But admitting that you masturbate is admitting not only that you have physical needs and wants, but also that you have a weird human body and not just a pristine, uncunted Barbie mound. <laughs> so, but, I mean, it's, it's not just gender. Uh, the shame comes from religion, too. I know I grew up in the South, going to a Presbyterian church every week, and it was actually a really supportive place that kind of became a safe haven for me in my awkward teenage years, which means I bought in a little too hard, I got a little overzealous, and, you know, went to youth group and went to all the church retreats, and I was in the worship band that sang the Christian rock songs, and... Uh, uh, the consequence of this devotion was a long, frustrated summer where I felt like I couldn't masturbate because I was wearing a WWJD bracelet. <laughs> and I felt like that would be a particular offense to God. And so, you know, society, religion, and then parents, right? Masturbation shame comes from parents, but I think my parents really 
tried to not give me a complex about this stuff. I remember as a kid being in the car, riding in the back seat. My mom and my older brother were in the front seat, and they were laughing about a bumper sticker on the car in front of us. It said, masturbation is not a sin. I was like, what is masturbation? (laughs) And my brother's head just whips to my mom, and he says, do not tell her now. (laughs) So my mom comes to my room later that night, and she perches on the edge of my bed, and she says, you know how it feels good when you touch your vagina? <laughs> and I immediately wanted to die. <laughs> but I said yes, <laughs> because I did. Uh, and she, she explained to me, it's like having an itch, and usually the best thing to do about an itch is to just scratch it yourself. <laughs> uh, and uh, I maintain that that's not bad advice. <laughs> But with my dad, it's a, it's a different ball of wax. I don't think any woman relishes the thought of discussing sex with her father. But my dad is a thoughtful guy. He likes to write and talk about his feelings. And when it was time for my brother and I to receive the sex talk, he wrote a six-page essay <laughs> about his thoughts and feelings about sex. Six pages. <laughs> single space and not only that we had to go and sit down and talk to him about it after we were done reading it and tell him how it made us feel and I remember him saying to me he was like your brother seems to think that this is awkward and I don't get it you don't think this is uncomfortable either and I lied obviously I was an 11 year old girl with a good decade of rigorous people pleasing in front of me and so I was like no But in my mind, I was thinking, everything about this is excruciating. Uh, So I think it surprises no one that I quickly, accidentally, on purpose, misplaced that paper and have never read it again. Uh, But among the things that I have been unable to wipe from my consciousness were a paragraph or two extolling the virtues of masturbation and going on about how it's generally, like, real great. (laughs) So I can't totally blame my parents for my shame. I think it comes mostly from a lifetime of eager, relentless obedience and a wider cultural demonization of ladies' um, spelunking. So the first winter I was out of college, I was working in this terrible ice cream shop that no one ever went to, ever. And I would be there for seven hours under the fluorescent lights, just milkshake after mint chip milkshake shaking in my chair. And I had to break up the stillness, so I started making snowflakes. You know, when you fold paper like eight times and cut it a lot and tape it to the wall? I wallpapered that place in snowflakes. I was miserable. I was so unsatisfied with my life. I had not made any new adult friends. I had this degree that I was working so hard for just a year ago, and now it was deteriorating on the shelf. I didn't know what I was doing, and as usual, I was single. 
<laughs> and I thought, I have to do something. I have to address this frustration and restlessness. Do I look for a new job? No. Do I try to find real direction in my life? No. Do I seek out actual human companionship? No, I was a grown woman, damn it, and it was time to buy myself a vibrator. <laughs> but uh, that decision comes with no small amount of anticipation. Like, is this tool going to change everything? Do I only think that I've experienced an orgasm, but this is just going to be some miracle revelation? Is my entire personality built on a foundation of sustained sexual dissatisfaction? And after this, all my atoms will be blown apart and realign themselves into self-actualization and swagger? <laughs> there are so many possibilities. Like, I had to do it. I had to act... While I had my mint chip-fueled gumption, I had to strike while the iron was hot, and I had three options. I could go to Cherry Pie, the adult toy store out on the highway. You may be familiar. Uh, but I didn't want to go alone, and I wasn't ready to tell anyone, much less bring them with me on this shopping trip. So two, I could do what any good millennial would do and turn to the Internet. But at the time, I had this sad, shut-in roommate who compulsively deep-cleaned our apartment and also was addicted to online shopping, and I was afraid that my package would arrive on the front stoop and she would just tear into it, thinking it was her weekly shipment of Lysol. <laughs> no, I had to do something now, and I had to go somewhere where I could be anonymous. I needed to go to the Super Target. <laughs> but once I got to the store, it took me 45 minutes to even approach the aisle with the vibrator. I just lapped that store in shrinking circles like a vulture waiting for an asthmatic hiker to bite it. <laughs> I was grabbing decoy items off the shelf and throwing them into my basket like... I could throw the other customers off of my scent, but I was there for one reason, and one reason only. And when I got to the aisle with the condoms and assorted sexual Vaselines and my vibrator, I slouched around my basket like I was going to pull a drive-by, and I went through. I didn't even slow down. Just whip my hand, grab it, throw it in the basket, keep rolling. And when I got to checkout, I had three items in my cart. Uh, my vibrator, uh, some car air fresheners, and a family-sized box of Cheez-Its. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I needed a contingency plan I knew I could count on in case I had built this up a little too much in my head. And I had, I had two choices at the checkout lanes. I could go with this boisterous, exemplary customer service professional, or Alyssa, a mousy girl in her mid-twenties with this perpetually scrunched nose who seemed to find 
all congeniality just excruciating. (laughs) But uh, her social anxiety disorder was my saving grace. I got into her lane, and she's in the middle of like a pain. Oh, hello, how are... When she sees that she's holding a metallic purple box that reads Vibrations by Trojan. (laughs) And I think for a minute, maybe she'll be cool. But no. (laughs) Uh, She just lets the silence fall. Not another word. Just the sustained, suspended moment of just befuddled judgment. And then she speeds up, like, to make up for it. She's just scanning frantically, and there's nothing happening, no beeping, and she's just getting it all out of the basket and through the line and into the bag. And she rings me up, and I look at the little card swiper, and I notice she has only charged me for the air fresheners and the (laughs) Cheez-Its. Now, I've never stolen anything in my life. I've never even thought about stealing anything in my life. I mentioned obedience. Like, <laughs> the, the thought of upsetting someone or angering someone or breaking a rule, still, to this day, just waves of anxiety. So, so I lied to myself. I was like, maybe it's a BOGO thing. Like, <laughs> buy one box of Cheez-Its, get one vibrator for free. Like, I'm sure that's a thing. (sighs) So I didn't say anything, and I grabbed my bag, and I made my way towards the door, and my hands were shaking, and I could smell my own nervous sweats, and I couldn't look anywhere but straight in front of me. I thought I was going to pass out, because I was so sure when I hit those doors, that alarm would go off. And the security guys would come running, and also every employee in the store would come running, and also every customer would just come along and make me dump out my bag and see it there, my contraband vibrator on the floor, and they would know. And they would arrest me, and my mugshot would be on the evening news next to a picture of a stupid, stubby purple vibrator, and I would be banned from every Target everywhere forever. But miracle of miracles, uh, none of that happened. No alarms went off, and I walked out of the Target into the cold sunshine with a new sense of possibility, (laughs) with a rush of giddy confidence, with a free Trojan brand vibrator that I would soon find summarily disappointing. (laughs) I was invincible. Thank you. Amy Allen! Awesome. I'm so glad that her mother didn't gingerly sit her down on the edge of her bed and tenderly say, you know, you don't have an uncunted Barbie mound. (laughs) I I was sitting backstage and I was like, was that what I heard? (laughs) 
Uh, when I was 18 years old and brand new to New York City, I was very drunk and very frustrated one night because I had watched all my straight friends go home with partners. And I was riding the subway home and I thought, I'm going to do something radically new tonight. I'm going to shove a cucumber up my ass. <laughs> so I, I, it was four or five o'clock in the morning and I thought to myself, oh my God, I would never own something like a cucumber. That's a vegetable. So I thought, well, oh my God, there might be a 24-hours place open. And miracle of miracles, right there when I got out of the subway, there was a 24-hour grocery store open. And I ran in, and it was that sort of fluorescent light, sort of David Lynch, like... And there was only one person there that I could see, and it was this, like, stoned kind of uh, slacker guy. He looked like, you know, Kurt Cobain, but a lot dumber. And he's just kind of, you know, looking at me like, okay, here's a customer. And I go to get the cucumber, and I find, just like Goldilocks, just the right size. (laughs) And then I rush back to the counter, and I think, oh, my God, yeah, I should get some decoy stuff. I mean, maybe I should get some other things that a person might get if they were getting a cucumber (laughs) under ordinary circumstances. But I saw that I had spent all my money on drinking, and I literally only had change enough to buy a cucumber so I come up to the guy and I put the cucumber down and I'm expecting a reaction but there's no reaction at all and he just rings it up and I'm like oh my god he's so stupid I got away with this but as he's handing me the cucumber in the bag he just raises an eyebrow and he says have a nice salad Uh, I want to bring up our next storyteller. He told a story the last time we were here in Chapel Hill, uh, and we loved him so much, we knew we had to bring him back. He is going to be at the April Monty Grand Slam. The Monty is the storytelling show nearby. Uh, You can find him on Facebook and Twitter at What Ray Said, and you can also find him on the Best of Risk Number seven, that episode. Please welcome the stage, Ray Christian. It was the summer of uh, 1970, during break from uh, elementary school. And we were surrounded with hot, tarry, sticky streets that were badly in need of repair, and we were surrounded by dilapidated houses, abandoned homes, single-family dwellings that now had more than four families each living inside, crisscrossed with alleys and spaces between houses that made it easy for you to walk through. One of the streets was called an avenue, and the cars sped by all day long. On one corner, there was a gas station that fixed cars. On another corner, there was a pool hall that was active 24 hours a day. And across that avenue was this large, wide building that people call the club. And it was within this orbit our entire world existed, where we played unsupervised and unlooked after by Miss James, 
whom our working poor parents paid a few dollars each day to look after us. I heard Ms. James say before many times, mostly behind our parents' back, these damn kids are not worth me chasing for the few pennies that I'm making. So with this attitude, we remained unsupervised to run amok in the neighborhood and to play with whatever the environment offered to us. As a group, we were the two Daniel brothers, Tim and Mo. Tim was uh, 13 years old in the fourth grade. His brother, Mo, his little brother, was 11 years old in the fifth grade. <laughs> then there was Fred, who was 11 years old, but he had no front teeth. Then there was me, 11 years old, and ironically, my mother cleaned houses and she babysat white kids for a living. So, as a group, we went about unsupervised and we played with whatever we could find. In particular, we played in the alleys. The alley by the gas station gave us the most stuff to play with. Everything that they would dispose of, oil cans, tires, batteries, we played with. One of our favorite games was to stack up dead old car batteries, and they were heavy. And one time, Fred, he started stacking up these car batteries, and he got them really high, and it started to tip, and some fluid splashed out, and it got on his face and on his arms. And he screamed. But nothing happened right away. And then his skin started turning white, and it peeled off. He started crying, and he ran off. The informal rule of our play was, Anytime you started to cry, the game was over. One of the other things we liked to play with was the nuts and bolts that we found in the alley. We would throw them at each other. We'd throw them up in the air, throw them up against the side of buildings. But more than nuts and bolts, we liked to play with spark plugs. The thing about a spark plug is just like a plug of metal surrounded by ceramic. And the thing about it is the weight. It's heavy for its size. And one of the kids said to me, Ray, you ever heard the sound of a spark plug when it hit the ground? I said, nah. He said, take it and throw it on the ground. So I picked up the spark plug and I threw it down on the ground and it started to bounce and it made this funny, strange, reverberating, uh, echoey kind of sound. It was like, boing. So I surmised in my 11-year-old mind that whatever this thing came in contact with, it would bounce. So I picked up a spark plug, and I decided to test out this theory by throwing it at Tim's head as hard as I could. <laughs> so I threw the spark plug at him, but it didn't bounce when it made contact with his head, and it didn't vibrate either. In fact, when it made contact with the side of his head, it just made a thud sound, and it fell to the ground. Then Tim fell to the ground. <laughs> then he went to sleep. Then he woke up. Then he forgot what happened. And so since he didn't cry, we just continued to play. <laughs> we also liked to play with the old tires that we would find in the alley. We would roll them around the corners. We would sit on them and make car noises. Vroom, vroom. And sometimes we would take these tires and we would roll them into the avenue. 
by accident, <laughs> sometimes on purpose. Well, one time we were rolling the tires and we rolled them into an avenue and two cars almost collided trying to avoid the tires. They squealed on brakes. One car actually hit the curb and ran up on the sidewalk and knocked over a sign. And the guy got out of the car and he chased us. And he actually caught Mo and he pulled off his belt and he beat his ass. Shortly after that, uh, his brother Tim, he ran after an imaginary tire into the avenue. But he got hit by a real car. Broke his leg in three places. The bones were sticking out of the skin and bleeding. But we continued to play anyway. <laughs> One of the things we liked to play with a lot, of course, were balloons. But we, we never had a lot of balloons. Every time we would get some, we would end up popping them the, the same day. But one day I was walking through the alley and I saw this balloon sitting there. It's a white balloon. And I noticed that the, uh, the part of the balloon that you blow up, it was a lot larger and rounder than the, than the balloons that I normally would play with. But I could tell that somebody had used it before because it had spit in it. My spidey senses are telling me that somebody is wanting to say, Ray, explain to us what it tasted like. <laughs> but it's not relevant to the story. <laughs> well, I started looking for them after that, and I started finding them. In fact, I had a little sandwich bag where I was actually starting to collect them. What? So uh, it was this guy in the neighborhood I was walking with. He didn't normally play with us a lot. And we were walking together, and I saw one on the ground, and I bent down to pick it up. And he said, stop, don't touch that, it's nasty. Don't you know what that is? I said, of course I know what it is. All you have to do is clean it off, and it's good. He said, oh, well, okay then. But it was something about my mother's reaction when she saw me washing one out in the sink. <laughs> and she almost killed herself trying to take it away from me. She made me uh, gargle with vinegar and she, she threw away my stash. <laughs> that and something I heard in health class about uh, semen made me give up the balloons. <laughs> Reluctantly. But the thing that would change our whole playing environment was when the club was actually closed. And shortly thereafter, it was transformed into a public health clinic. And outside that health clinic was this big old dumpster that they would fill with medical waste. No, this was fun. You could go inside and pull out these long gauzes and bandages that had red and brown and scabby, sticky, slimy things on them. No, 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 no. You could wrap yourself up and look like a mummy. But the things that we were really interested in were the needles because we were familiar with darts. Uh, we'd seen them on TV, we'd seen them in the store, 
Um, the needles were easy to get at if they were on the top. But every once in a while, you had to stick your arm in deep to get at them. Sometimes you had to jump inside to get at them. Now, you get stick in a few places, but it was no more than uh, running into a, a briar patch or messing with a blackberry bush or something like that. It wasn't really painful. The, the more dangerous thing you had to worry about is if somebody had shut the door on that thing on top of an old alley cat. And you get caught with a cat in there and he's holding on to a bloody uh, sponge or something, he'll fight you for it. <laughs> So we gained a lot of experience playing with needles. Uh, we called them dart needles. Um, some of the smaller ones, if you threw them, they wouldn't fly very well. The needles would bend. They would break off. So we knew that you had to get the bigger ones, the ones that would had needles that were probably at least two inches long. We knew the ones that had needles that had hoses on them. They weren't worth anything. And we soon discovered that if you took those needles and you filled them with water or sand or rocks, they were heavy and they would fly much better. And one of the games we used to play was stick the board. And basically we would take one of these needle darts and we would launch them up into the air and somebody would take a board and they would hold it out and the dart would fall down and stick on it. Sometimes we'd lob them at each other and somebody would stick their board up and stick it. Sometimes we learned to do a little spin and stick the board out and catch it. <laughs> And every once in a while, there was a couple of accidents, you know. But, but as long as you didn't cry, we could keep on playing. So one day, somebody launched one high into the air, and Fred did his little dance. He spun around. He took his board. He threw it up. The dart came down, and it stuck right in the corner of his eye. So Fred hit the ground and he started trembling. And he screamed out, don't pull it out. And somebody yelled, pull it out. And Tim pulled it out. So uh, Fred, he stopped shaking in and he was just staring into space. Then a little small pink tear came out of the corner of his eye. So technically that's crying. So we stopped playing that day. But for some reason he didn't want to play anymore. Just reflecting on these childhood playing experiences, uh, now that I know something about uh, germ theory, uh, <laughs> disease transmission, HIV, hepatitis, how lobotomy is performed. Um, <laughs> look, I, I can't tell you for sure that any of these things had any long-term impact on any of us. But I can tell you this. Tim, the kid that I knocked unconscious with a spark plug and who ran after an imaginary tire and got hit by a real car, he grew up to die of a heroin overdose. And his brother Mo, who got his ass whooped by a complete stranger, he died after he slapped his girlfriend and she stabbed him to death. And Fred, who spilled acid on himself and got a needle stuck in the corner of his eye, he was killed trying to rob a pawn shop. And the kid who tasted sperm, he lives.
Great Christian, everyone. Uh, that was a perfect example of why we do not encourage children to listen to the podcast. <laughs> Good lordy lord. All right, I want to bring up our final storyteller tonight. She writes for Reductress, the website. She is also a performer here at DSI, and she is Bianca Casasol. Uh, So my story takes place in the not-too-distant past in New York City. I uh, got married really young, so I also got divorced pretty young. (laughs) That's how that goes sometimes. So I'm still sort of a romantic and was hoping, like, I think if you're in a marriage in the period right before a divorce, you think, like, well, if I'm ever single, though, like, I'm going to be great. Everything's going to just be coming up roses. Okay, Cupid proved to me that that's not always the case. Uh, Or certainly it wasn't for me. I found it just sort of a disappointing experience and... It felt really dehumanizing, sort of just like catalog shopping for humans. Uh, So I I signed off of that and was like, I'm going to be a spinster. Uh, Because that that decision happens in your late 20s, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, I ended up just sort of hanging out with a lot of different friends and trying to like, I got a new job and I like did my hair differently. To see, like, maybe this is who single adult me is like. Um, and then I met this guy. His name was Jonathan. My friend Kim, who I worked with, introduced me to him. And it was a very romantic start. We made out a lot at the end of parties. So classic romance. Very, very sweet. Uh, but eventually, like, he was sort of funny and cute and a cool guy. Eventually, we got each other's numbers and started texting. A few years back, this is when text plans were a thing. We texted so much that after three days, I got a notice from my provider that I had to upgrade my 500 text message plan. So we were, like, getting in there and texting each other constantly. I decided he was worth the upgrade to unlimited text. So I'm taking, like, a real financial... Uh, sort of risk on this fella. Uh, it was like $9, guys. So I knew I was in it to win it. Uh, at this point, we had not even been dating. We were just had made out a couple times. And uh, if we were at a party, we were probably going to make out at the end. It was probably going to be gross for everyone around us. And that was just like what it was. And we would just text and, and G-chat all day long. And after a few weeks of that, and after I had made the decision that, like, all right, I put money into this. I upgraded my plan. I'm going to pull the trigger. So I sent him this text message, because that's how I ask people out, uh, that was like, hey, this is maybe awkward, but, like, do you want to go on, like, a date? Like a, And I, for whatever reason, I felt like I really had to clarify. Like, he didn't know what the English word date meant. So I was like, you know, like, I'm going to wear, like, probably something dumb and, like, you're probably going to pay for it, but it won't be that expensive. It'll be like, so like, that's what I'm thinking. So weird, maybe. Are you into it? Uh, uh, surprisingly, he said yes. And he was like, yes, like, this is so great. I actually, last time we hung out, I was going to ask you out. And then we started making out and I didn't think about it. Uh, 
so so this was going great. And I was like, cool, this is what single me is like. Like, I'm an independent woman. I'm asking people out. Bam. I'm, I'm Beyonce. Uh, so... So this is sort of what this was. And then it ended up going really well. Like, our first date was super weird because I had been working at Bust Magazine Holds a Craftacular. And one of the vendors there was a makeup vendor who put crazy makeup on my face. Just, like, literally, not hyperbolically, seven different colors of eyeshadow. Uh, And this was right before I was supposed to meet him. And, like, I just could not. Every time I rubbed it, it just was smudging. So I was like, well, this is what it's going to be. But it was really cute. Like, he was really nice about it. The waitress was weirdly mean to us, and he, like, made jokes about how she was just jealous that she only had two colors of eyeshadow on. (laughs) So it was, like, it was very cute. I felt like this was going well. And, like, we started dating more and more. Now, uh, I don't know what to do with free time because I don't know how normal humans live. So I had four jobs at the time. And one thing that was great about him is he was one of the few guys that I dated that wasn't weirded out when we were trying to plan a date. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, normal times for me. I'm free, like, Sunday before 10 a.m., Thursday after 2 a.m., you know, normal times. Because he also had a lot of jobs. So it sort of, you know, worked out really well. I think our relationship probably progressed slower than one that you can actually see each other more than in weird snippets. But we had some, like, cute stuff. We had, like, a bar we would go to called the Triple Crown, which is this sort of improviser bar in New York. And I was not yet improvising, but I was really interested in it at the time. And he was taking classes at the UCB. Uh, For, uh, like, our second or third date, he brought me, in lieu of flowers, he said, the UCB class syllabus, which for me, I was like, oh, my God. So romantic. Uh, (laughs) So, like, a lot of these, like, very chilled-out overtures. So once we had been dating... Maybe four months, between three and four months, he had his big class show, uh, which was a big deal because his parents were going to be there, his sister was going to be there, and his best friend, who had been his like friend through high school, had heard all about her, Corey, uh, he'd just known forever. It was like his partner in crime. Another thing that he didn't know about that class show is it was actually on the day of what would have been my wedding anniversary. So I didn't tell him that because it felt like too much. But to me, I was like, oh, my God, Shaka Khan is basically playing in the background. Like, oh, I could be sad, but instead I'm going to hang out with, like, a cute boy. And this is going to be, like, wonderful. Because we had only been dating for a couple of months, and I'm sort of a squirrely person and a little gun shy. So I think, like, a lot of recent divorcees are. I said, like, maybe we don't need to tell your parents or your family that, like, I'm your GF. We just sort of let it ride. Because, like, we'll, we'll, we'll see them another time. Like, it's totally fine. And he was bemused, but okay with that. So at his class show, and he has this, like, uh, at the UCB, a lot of times the level one class shows are very early in the day. So we went there. It's probably, like, noon. I meet his mom, who's super rad, his sister, Lindsay. She's got her friend, Beth, there. And then, like, this infamous Corey, who seems super nice. And then we go to a bar and have a couple drinks. After that, he says, like, oh, I want to do dinner with my family. Do you want to join in? And I was like, ma, they're here for you. Like, you should just do this dinner with them. I'll meet you later because we're always at this bar. We always watch the game at this bar. We'll just watch this hockey game that you're super into later. So later in the evening, I come back for the hockey game. So they've all had dinner. I went out with some of our mutual friends 
to have dinner and then met him back here. Now, at this point, it's early evening, but again, we started around noon. So a lot of people pretty loose. Uh, I am not quite as rowdy because despite the fact that his parents did not yet know I was like his GF, I didn't want to be like a drunk, crazy person around them. So I was like trying to keep it pretty chill. And as we get there, we're sitting at the bar and this bartender at the Triple Crown, Sinead, who for whatever reason just like loved us and like we always chatted with her when we were there on dates, was like, oh, isn't it so great to see Jonathan here with a girl to his mom? And his best friend goes, we're going to be married. Okay. Uh, But I just was like, oh, this is just like a bit. This is like a funny thing that people do with their friends. We've known each other for so long. We're married. He's my husband. Uh, I don't know. I didn't know how dating worked as a grown-up. So I was like, okay, (laughs) cool. And then just keep on hanging out. Uh, A little bit later in the night, people are really worse for where my friend Kim, who had introduced uh, him to me, has had to go home because she puked. Uh, His sister and his best friend super hammered. So we're all going to the bathroom as a group, like all of us ladies, like me, Lindsay, his sister, his sister's friend Beth, and this best friend Corey. And as I'm like peeing and in the stall, I hear, oh my God, you're going to be such a good sister-in-law. And I was like, well, that's nice. She doesn't even know. Like, she must be really pumped about us. And then I hear from not my mouth, I know, I'm so excited about it. And I was like, that's a pretty deep bit. (laughs) It's pretty cool that everyone's so into it. Just family jokes and friends. That's nice. Uh, but I'm still like sort of thinking like, mm, something feels a little weird um, so as I'm like washing my hands and, and his sister Lindsay and Corey have left the bathroom and his sister's friend Beth says to me it's so romantic because he's been in love with her for like 10 years and this is the day it happened and I was like ah cool God, you know it sounds like I missed something super fun while I was at Panera. Uh, God, I would, I would like love to hear the story because it just sounds so cute. Uh, and she was like, oh, so we're all eating dinner together. And Cray said something funny. You know how she's so funny. I guess. Uh, and Jonathan said, marry me, which is a thing he would say all the time. Like, I think you've seen it in Arrested Development. Some people just say it frequently. Oh, you got a grilled cheese of the same kind of cheese I like? Marry me. So that's what he said. And she said, we've known each other for so long. Why don't we just do it? <laughs> okay. At this point, I don't understand what's going on because like, he's seen me there and been friendly and not been like, hey, you got to go because I'm engaged now. So you should scoot. Uh, so I, I did what I think any rational person would do, which is go to the bar and order seven car bombs and say, like, I don't know who wants one of these, but I'm drinking whatever anybody doesn't take. Uh, uh, so I had five. Um, and then just, like, left. Because I didn't, I, I didn't know what was happening, and I wasn't sure, like, 
if it was a joke, I didn't want to be that crazy, and I had been drinking, that was like, hey, what's, because like, uh, what if it's a joke and I look stupid? Or, what if he's really engaged and that should be kind of a special day, I guess? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, so, I didn't hear from him for a couple days, which was weird, because again, we would text like a hundred times a day, like a crazy amount. And then eventually, I G-chatted him like, hey, great show, what's new? Because I didn't, I didn't want to approach it head on. It was just so surreal that I like didn't, know how to address it and he was like know the much Max and Chillaxin <laughs> cool and then I just logged off because I didn't I was like well I guess you're not or you are but regardless you haven't asked me out on another date so I guess we're just not dating so for practical terms for me it doesn't really matter if you're engaged because we're just we're not seeing each other anymore so we were still Facebook friends and like maybe like a month later, he sent me this Facebook message sort of out of the blue that was just like a meme. And it was like, LOL, right? Uh, and I was like, yeah, pretty funny. And then I see in my feed, because your Facebook feed still updates in the background while your messenger is going, a newspaper announcement of their engagement. So I just shut my whole laptop down and walked away like it was going to follow me because I just like... I don't even know how to begin to process what's going on. And, you know, I had texted my friend. I was like, so is Jonathan, that guy that you used to set me up with, is he engaged? And she was like, LOL, what? So, like, I have no idea what's going on. And at some point, she, like, wants to know if I want to get our mutual friends involved to try to find out the deal. But, like, I'm really invested in being, like, a cool girl for some reason. So it's like, no, I mean, I don't even care. Like... Whatever, if he is or isn't engaged that happened on a date that I was on. Like, why would I even care? (laughs) What kind of crazy person do you think I am that I would care about that? I cared so deeply. Uh, So the next time I ran into him, it was Halloween, which is great. Because, you know, on Halloween, you're usually wearing something really sexy. Not me. I was dressed in a hastily assembled garden gnome costume. (laughs) So just to, like, paint this picture, I was wearing leggings, Ugg boots, a, like, Hanes blue sweatshirt in size, like, 700X. Like, that came super... I could, like, stretch it out and hold different people in it. And, like, a, a hat made of red poster board that I'd shaped into a cone. And because I was doing this last minute, in New York, a lot of the like holiday stores or like party cities sell out super quick because there's only a couple. So the beard that I had didn't have like hooks on it, so I had to spirit glue it to my face. So this was just like there. There was nothing I could do about it. And it was not even a gnome beard. It had like a vaguely racist name, like Kung Fu Master Beard. <laughs> but what it looked like was like charcoal gray very wispy with like a Fu Manchu portion that went all the way down to my knees so I'm already pretty drunk when I get the text from my friend Kim that says heads up Jonathan's gonna be here and I was like "Eh." I mean I'm in a cab I don't this, I'm cool girl, I don't, pfft, whatever. 
so that night, like, he says hey to me. We sort of don't bring it up at all and sort of just exist in this karaoke space just as far away as we can. And I'm trying to be cool about it, but what that means is that I'm pounding whiskey and chasing it with fun-sized Halloween candy. Just, like, angrily eating Twix bars and, like, whiskey. And, like, my beard has, like, accumulated this, like, chocolate and whiskey gravy. It's, like, it's not the most flattering look for an ex that has recently spurned you in a spectacular way. Uh... But I felt like I'm, I'm pretty chill. I'm like hanging until the very end of the night when he comes up to me and goes, this is so fun. Like, why don't we do this anymore? And I was like, oh my God, yeah, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you motherfucking kidding me? And then proceeded to dress him down at that volume for at least, I'm going to say at least six minutes because two separate karaoke acts were called up as I was doing this and like whipping my beard around my shoulder for effect and like at this point I'm like blind with rage like some guy walks past and is like oh looks like some guy forgot to pay the bridge toll and I was like I'm a fucking gnome you never watch cartoons you piece of shit fuck you Fuck you! Do I look like a fucking troll? This is a fucking gnome! Another thing! Like, just... I just... I went fucking crazy. And, and to his credit, he stood there the whole time and was like, I know. Yeah, you're right. I know. I know. I know. I know. I don't... Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I know. For like, again, at least seven minutes. Uh, I found out much later, I sort of got more context for this story. What happened was, so we had been dating. He was not dating anybody else. This girl really was his like, I think in high school, you usually have that person that's your like unattainable dream. This girl was that for him. And when she said that, he didn't know she was joking or not. But he was like, I got to go all in, right? And I think a lot of people would be maybe more angry about it. But for me, I think there's something sort of nice about being a part of someone's story where they take this incredibly bold risk. You know, they do this crazy thing where they're like, yeah, let's get engaged right now, right the second. Well, I'm on a date with somebody else. Let's do it. Uh, so, like... I mean, it, it might not have been, like, a romantic comedy moment, uh, except maybe, like, if I were Ducky, maybe that could be true. Uh, but on the upside, I did get to berate a man while dressed as a gnome, and that felt great. Come on, come on, come on, will it go? I love you, love you, will it go, yeah? Will it go, yeah? Shine on or shine bright, will it go? Come on, come on, will it go, yeah? Will it go, yeah? Oh, whoa, now will it go? Come on, will it, will it go, yeah? Will it go, yeah? 
this week's episode folks this is dion behind me now and you know what it has nothing to do with the story we just heard it is also uh not an indie song from the past year or so it's just a song that's been unavailable in the united states for since i was a baby and i grew up listening to it in my living room and it's my birthday today so fuck it I'll play what I want. Speaking of that, listen, if you want to say happy birthday, come follow me on Twitter at the Kevin Allison. And you can find Risk there and on Facebook as well at Risk Show. If you live in Los Angeles or New York, you can see us live every fourth Thursday. In New York, we're at the People's Improv Theater. In Los Angeles, we are at the Nerd Nerdist Showroom. Still getting used to calling it that. Portland, you filthy hipster sons of bitches. We're going to be in your town on March 29th. And I'm teaching workshops there too. Come on out, learn some storytelling, attend the show. Portland, we love you. And there's still plenty of time to pitch your stories. You might be included in that show. Just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. And folks, there are so many opportunities to learn storytelling through our sister business, thestorystudio.org, either storytelling for business, for your career, or just as a creative outlet to do this kind of storytelling that we do on stage. We've got in-person workshops, one-on-one training over Skype, corporate workshops, in-person workshops. Check us out at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Come on, come on, come on, come on, will it go? I love you, love you, will it go? Yeah, will it go? Yeah, love you, will it go? Yeah, come on, will it? You can. Ha <laughs> ha!